You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 179. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, all of those wonderful places where you can find podcasts. I'm, I hope we're there. And if we're not, uh, let Alan know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. You like how I threw oh. you under the bus? Like, Yeah, That's I gave right. you work to do already. That's right. I'm done. Uh, visit us at CodyBlocks.net where you can find all our show notes, examples, discussions, and much more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodyBlocks.net. And we got all the tweets you're ever going to need over on Twitter at CodyBlocks. Uh, we also have a bunch of links at the top of our page on CodyBlocks.net. With that, I'm Joe Zach. Oh, and I'm late. I'm Michael Outlaw. <laughs> and I am under the bus, Alan Underwood. <laughs> Alan Alan under the bus. Alan under the bus would. Yes. There we go. This episode is sponsored by Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse. You shouldn't have to project manage your project management. All right. And today uh, we're going to be talking about a minimum viable continuous delivery platform. Um, but first, a little bit of news. All right. So, uh, Outlaw, you typically read off for reviews. You want to do that? Yep. Um, this one is, uh, you know how I am with, with proper nouns. It's always a problem. So, uh, Nada is how yeah. I would say that one. <laughs> Did I not get it right? Yeah, yeah. We, we got Nada. <laughs> we got Nada. Mommies. <laughs> we already shared that out. So if you, have, if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, so yeah, we didn't get any reviews. We're sad faces. Um, hopefully. Hopefully we'll get one this next go around. Um, one, yeah, you know, more than one would be fantastic, but yeah. one would be great. I feel like we need yeah. a truckload. That's right. Make up for it. All right, so so I actually hit these guys up earlier today because I was frustrated, and and so I wanted to bring this up because we all three had different takes on this, and I thought it was great. So here here's what happened, and I think we might have talked about this in the past, but whatever, we'll talk about it again. So I had a class that that I was working in. And more or less what I wanted to do was have like an internal cache in this class, which means that I had a method that was creating these keys for the cache, but that's a private method, right? Like it, it, it was, it was doing something internal to the class that nothing else knows about, right? Like you're going to call something that says, Hey, get me this object from, from that class. And it might pull it from the cache or it might pull it from a service. It might pull it from a database. It doesn't matter. But the thing is this whole thing that was creating these keys was private. And I was like, how do I test the 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 key generation on this thing without making this member function public? And and this is where I'll turn it over to you guys to share your thoughts on it. Um and then and then I'll I'll share what what I think my thought was that I don't know that I'm going to do but but whatever. So Josiah, yours was more comical, I think. So <laughs> you, you, to share right. what your thought was yeah so my argument is that uh privacy is dead it's been dead for a long time i just can't care that much anymore about uh access and the reason i say that is because if i'm publishing uh you know like uh my api is basically a you know third-party jar or library or something then i'm not giving you my class anyway i've got some sort of interface that defines the contract and i'm not relying on this proper protected internal you know package whatever um which caught uh, I'm not relying on that to protect anything. So all you're really doing is, is sending a message to your coworkers, which is important, but 
not important enough to not test it. And so, you know, I would say either break it out to its own class and like test it there, in which case it's going to be you know, public basically. Uh, you could do that whole internal trick so you can like some, you know, like C sharp can let you um, mark things as like internally testable. I don't think it's worth it uh, because as one of your coworkers, if, and you know, in a hypothetical situation, if I find a private method that does exactly what I need and I need to use that somewhere else, guess what? I'm instantly going to turn that thing public and do what I need to do because now it's a shared behavior. And so what's the problem? So my idea here is basically uh, just set the thing to public and, you know, enjoy it. So, so to be clear, I, I guess to paint this in code terms, because what you just said is essentially anytime you're going to use that class, instead of providing the user of that class, the actual class, you're going to provide it the interface, right? So let's say it's a car, right? You're going to have an iCar interface, and then you're going to have your Mustang class. Nowhere is anybody going to be using that Mustang class directly. You're saying they're going to be using it through that iCar interface. And so it doesn't matter if anything's public in that Mustang class at all, because the only thing people are going to know about are the public members that were defined in that interface, right? Yeah, I'm going to use those as gates. I think those serve as better gates. Like it, it makes more sense to return an interface anyway. And it's this nice way of like very explicitly saying, this is what you get back from my library. And then I don't have to worry about you tripping on some methods that I, you know, coincidentally made public or private. And also I'd argue too, like, what is privacy for? Like, I, you know, I feel like you could make things, you know, we've talked about like code being coincidentally the same. And so it can be wrong sometimes to abstract something and share code between two different features that are coincidentally doing the same thing because eventually they diverge. And then you're like trying to kind of make this abstraction work. I think can, things can be coincidentally public or coincidentally private as well, where you just kind of either do it by default or you you make something private because you don't have a use for it yet. And I, I'd argue that that's not a great use of something being private because just because you don't use it today doesn't mean that it shouldn't ever be used. And so, you know, while I, you know, don't get me wrong, I still like make my methods private by default. It's just that I don't really put a lot of stock in seeing that. So if I see another developer's code and they've got a private method, that to me isn't a, a promise or a warning that I shouldn't ever use that method. It's saying no one else is using it right now. I prevented the leakage but it doesn't mean that I can't change that code to take advantage of it. That's an interesting take. Like it, my, my gut reaction to that is that it seems crazy talk, but, but I think the only reason is, is typically when I make things private, they're doing like grunge work for the other stuff, right? Like, and so they're, they're supposed to be doing the things that nobody should care about. And that's why I typically make them private. So it's weird. Like I, I see your point to a certain degree, right? Like, Hey, who cares? Um, well, here, okay, it, one more, one last argument. If your if your argument is that you shouldn't have to change your code to make it more testable, then good luck testing anything because that's yeah, totally, yeah, that, that's, that's the, the problem. All you do. Yeah. I mean, what you said makes sense, right? Like, let's say that, um, you know, you had a Mustang class, like we said, and so maybe you want to create a um, uh, a method call, you know, let me hear the beautiful exhaust note, right? That interface isn't going to have that thing, but you could totally test it in a unit test if you made that thing public. And so you did completely get around the problem. So it, it makes sense. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's fine. I don't know. I've never thought about it from that perspective. When you said it, I was like, wow, that's, Okay. And I can't think of any great arguments for it or, or against it. 
What about all right? So outlaw, you had oh, you had okay. another take on this. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I want to say that like when Alan posed this question to us, like the the background of the caching and all that was not at all told to us. It was like. <laughs> I have a private method that I want to test how I tested it because like, as you were describing the use case, I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. Like, why are we test? Whoa. Like that should be in something else that, that would be testable and not inside of this thing that, and then like, who cares? Cause it's inside of this other thing that you would test and like, you know, maybe it's doing too much or whatever, like a whole slew of other questions like popped into my head. But uh, then as, as Jay Z was saying his, his take on this, it made me think of, um, uh, a coworker had told me about this uh, architectural pattern I'd never heard of um, until he mentioned it, but it's, it's uh, I guess, popular in video game development. And it's called the Entity Component System. And it's basically uh, a principle that, or it's basically a, a type of pattern that, you know, largely just favors composition over inheritance. Uh, and so you're passing around interfaces. So like, you know, if all you needed to know about the car in, in Alan's example was that, does it have doors? Then you get a, a door interface that like describes like, hey, here's how you unlock this door. Uh, does the door, you know, fold up and down like, you know, or like scissor, like a Lamborghini or does it, uh, you know, open like normal or is it a suicide doors like on a Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Continental, you know, like, um, or, you know, that same car you know, that same data structure that is the car might also have another interface. that's like the engine and, you know, the engine interface might return back like, Oh, uh, here's how you can like listen to what this thing sounds like. So there's your, your car note thing. So like basically the idea being behind that though, is that like one data structure, but it's like a slew of interfaces behind it. And, you know, depending on the need, you know, something else is going to see that in a different way. Um, so that that's kind of what Jay Z's response kind of reminded me of. Although technically, it's more about you know I, I believe that system is more about the data than it is like methods on the data. But same idea of like you know favoring composition over inheritance type of thing. So when Alan first hit us up though with this this question, and there was no like you know context of of the the specific use case. It was just like, hey, I have a private method. How do I test it? My go-to was like, well, if you truly, and I, and I'm, I'm positive we've talked about this before. I think we have, but if you truly wanted to test it, well, a, there's a strong argument to be made that like, you know, why do you want to test private methods? Right. Because like, you shouldn't care how your thing get, got there. Like you, you test the public stuff and the mechanics of how it got there. You shouldn't have to care about, and if you do, maybe the class is doing too much, and that's something that should be broken apart. And then you could test the, that thing in another class that is open, right? But if you do find yourself in this situation, then uh, where you you know you wanted to, then the I that the it was a hack, total hacky way of doing it, and uh, you know d- you know total gross. So don't judge me for for what I'm about to say. <laughs> But the idea was you could make a you could make the method uh, protected instead of private, so that only it and like anything that it inherit from it can can use it. And then you could create a mock class that is internal to the test library. So, like in a C sharp language, you know the, the the class signature would be internal. And then inside of that mock, 
you can have a public method that calls the uh, protected one for you. And so I showed Alan an example that <clears throat> I don't know who authored it, but whoever <laughs> came up with this idea, uh, I, I showed Alan an example where, um, you know, the, the actual method name was like call protected method and then underscore and then, and then whatever the real name was, because like in, uh, you know, test code, I tend to be verbose, you know, with not, Oh shoot. Did I give it away? I didn't write. I, I wasn't the author of this example. Uh, but yeah, so I tend to be verbose in, in my method name. So like, I don't mind spelling out like, Hey, I'm specifically calling a protected method. Um, and here's that method name. And then that way I can test the kind of mechanics of it, but it's super dirty. And I, and more often than not, like uh, it's only in a situation where like, I find that I really super duper 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 want to test that mechanic internally because there might be a whole chain of events happening uh, you know, in, inside of that class then I'm like, okay, I just want to know, like, I just want to verify that this one thing is doing what I think it should be doing. Maybe I ran into a bug and that's why I wanted to like write that test, you know? Um, cause like I said, I, I definitely try to start out without doing that and, and definitely, you know, it's not a habit to, to write those tests. It's yeah, super. So, so I'll give a little bit more insight into what I was doing just to, to help people follow along here. So really what I wanted to do was create an integration test more than a unit test, because I needed to find out how to get a version of something from an object I was getting back from a cloud call. And I was like, man, I, so I need to create a cache key. And so let me back up a little bit here too. So what outlaw described the first go around where you break out multiple interfaces, I think that's ultimately where I would land if I wanted to do this quote unquote, right. Is so I have my thing interface, right? Like that's, that's what my thing is. Get thing and, you know, create thing and delete thing. That's my main interface. But then I was thinking, well, maybe I create like a thing, a thing cache interface, right? And that thing will have methods like create key, get key from thing, whatever, right? Something along those lines. And if you did that, then maybe you only ever use it once, but at least then you'd have that contract that says, Hey, there's this thing that creates a thing key. And, and so you'd know how to get it. And then I could test it that way. Um, but again, it, this was very much an internal thing. That's like, Hey, if, if I just, if I had my own object that I was just creating, I'd know how to get the cache key, but because I'm getting something from a cloud service, I didn't know how to get the version off of it properly. And I wanted to guarantee that I created those keys properly. So it really needed to be an integration test. So at any rate, I think, I think the way that I would go about doing it, even though I'm sort of buying into Jay-Z's mode of like, I just make it public. Who cares? Um, you know, I have a contract. Nothing else is going to know about it unless it walks, walks it with reflection, right? Like that's really the only way you could get around it. Um, unless somebody needs it up directly. Or if somebody news it up direct or directly. Um, but I, I kind of like the idea of going, it's almost like the Microsoft way in my mind. Like, it, you know, you've seen like a list in Microsoft. If you look at it, that thing's like I iterable, I blah, blah, I blah, blah, blah. Like there's so many things that hang off of that. And, and it's purposeful, right? Like each one of them defines a little bit of what that thing can do. So 
I don't know. I thought it was interesting that we all had three different perspectives on this. And so I kind of wanted to share it and let you know, like we've all been doing this a long time and we all still came up with different ways that we would probably go to on this. So, um, Oh, we'll say like knowing more about the problem now. I think, uh, you know, assuming you're using something like spring or something with dependency injection, I would have a service that generates the key. And then, uh, you know, for unit tests or, you know, whatever you can, you know, you can plug in your own basically, but you don't care about that. You're doing integration tests. So integration tests, you would give it, you know, key provider, have it do the actual work. And then those integration tests aren't going to work a month from now, but you know, who cares? It got you past the hump. And if you ever need to work on it again, you can kind of you know, meddle with them again and get them working and do your thing. So it's funny you mentioned spring because one of the reasons I wanted to do an integration test and you've seen this, right? Like when you have a spring app, like getting the thing running, like if you're doing a bunch of work, you're creating a bunch of new classes, services, factories, whatever, right? Like that thing's not going to run when you go to run it because yeah. yeah, there's so much stuff that you've added that there's no way you've hooked it all up properly. And I couldn't see the information that I needed to see to finish writing the class that I needed to do. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do an integration test, right? Like I'm going to hook this thing up to the real service, get the stuff. And then that way I can get it back, finish writing my class so that when I do go to hook it all up and spring magically creates 5 million classes for me behind the scenes or, or um, instances, I'll be good to go. So yeah, it, it, it's a it's an interesting problem when you're working on on um, a lot of dependency injection stuff. So, well, uh, I got another uh, question for you before we get into the main topic here. Um, that was asked in our, that came up in our Slack community. All right, uh, Ben Ben Craig asked, um, "Why can't you give Elsa a balloon?" These are the questions that matter. She'll let it go. Because she'll only let it go. Yes. Nice. I win. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> That's good. That's real good. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. So, so we do a, a show here? I think so. I think so. I, I mean, that was good content. Home. Yeah, but that, oh, that was no. good content right there. I mean, we cool. could probably call it quits. You guys just want to wrap up and do the next one later? All right. Well, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right, so Jay-Z, you want to lead us off here? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, actually, this was uh, Outlaw's topic. Um, this is your idea. Oh, yeah. So, this is all your fault. So, uh, why don't you tell us what, what got you interested in this? Well, I mean, this was like along the ideas of we've talked about like the 12-factor app and the 11-factor app and the twin-factor app and then the seven-factor app. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> seven, <laughs> seven factor. <laughs> but, but there was this, uh, this new thing that like a common friend of ours shared about the minimum viable CD. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a you know neat kind of topic and along that same kind of like line of the the twelve factor app. Like, let's you know discuss that briefly. So that that's what this is. Hey, okay. and, and for what it's worth, this is sort of near and dear to my heart, only because over time, like I, I remember back in the day when you know CD and CI and none of that didn't exist, right? Like for for me as a developer, like we just built stuff and threw it out in production and. And, you know, hope it worked, right? Package that up, you know, put it out there. And after you get a taste of it, like you realize what you're missing. But then what's frustrating is if you get thrown into one that's not great, now you're frustrated because it's sort of doing things for you, but it's also holding you back. And so like this, this whole topic is, is really, it's near and dear to my heart (laughs) and having been through all the stages of with, without, with not great and all that, you know? 
Yeah, so the kind of idea behind it is uh, it's basically this is kind of a stripped down minimal version of a continuous deployment pipeline. So that if you were starting a new product today and you wanted to know, okay, what should I do to kind of get started um, if I don't really have any strong opinions on, or, or strong reasons to kind of deviate from a standard plan? Like what's what's vanilla here? And uh, that's that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I want to make it clear too that like CD in this case, uh, you know, for those new to it, we're referring to continuous delivery. Which is deployments, right? If you if you wanted to make it well, equal, I don't want to call it deployment necessarily, but there is okay delivery. Fair. Well, well, no, I guess the reason why he's saying that is because it's creating things that can be deployed, right? Like artifacts and whatnot. I assume that's where you're going with that. Well, uh, I mean, I, there's definitely a slant to this that I, but I wanted to hold that for later. Okay, we we'll hold it. All right, so. I guess to sort of hit at what they're going for and what they were talking about for this minimal minimum viable is the outcome they're looking for is improved speed, quality, and safety of the deployment pipeline. And and they had a nice little quote here that for um, for what their continuous delivery um, definition is really, and it's the engineering discipline of delivering all changes in a standard way safely. And I really like that personally. Like, I, I don't know that I'd ever seen it put so well. Who is this? We anyway. Oh yeah. They have a whole bunch of people up on their site. Did you guys click that? Uh, you mean the signatories of it? Yeah. 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 yeah so well, the, the you deal can, is- you can become a signatory. All you got to do is submit a pull request and they'll consider ah, yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, so the the deal is uh, it's kind of like the Agile Manifesto where a bunch of people got together and said like, hey, you know, what is this thing that we're all talking about? Like, how should we do this? And you know, let's come up with a you know a couple of basic things that we think are, are going to make this thing work. And so a, a couple of people got together and basically you know kind of signed their names, and here we are. And so th- it's not like a company. This isn't uh, minimum viable CD dot com. Oh, actually it is, but it's not a company. It's dot org. <laughs> dot org. Okay. You know, this isn't Microsoft. This is uh, just a bunch of people that got together and kind of it's like a consortium got this uh, stuff started. And so, you know, when they say they, it's whoever wrote that page. And, you know, these people all kind of agreed to it and signed their name to it. So that's who they is. This started out of like at a conference, a DevOps conference where they they broke off into a room and started trying to like solve the problem. I, I wanted to be clear too that the the website where you can find this is minimumcd.org and we're going to have links in the show notes to all of this but you know for those listening along that don't want to like go to the show notes just now but you're like what are they talking about? That's what we're talking about. Yep. And so they had a list of and, and we'll we'll sort of quickly go through these because we'll talk about them a little bit more in depth. But what they consider their minimum requirements for their minimum minimum viable CD, right? <clears throat> and so the first one is the application pipeline is the only way to deploy to an environment. And, and instead of putting a long definition of what the application pipeline is there, they actually had a link to an article, and I've shared that here. But more or less, it's the thing that sort of automatically does what you would do if people were manually doing it, which is building, um, building the application, merging stuff, building the artifacts, publishing them somewhere, making sure they're running there, like all that stuff. Right. And that's what they called the application pipeline. So now there's a, there's a whole article around it, but definitely go check it out. It'll be in our links. Um, so that's number one. So, and I thought that was interesting. I, I I'm assuming you guys did too, right? Like you can't build this thing except through this. I do have 
I do have one thing that bugs me about that. Um, we all like to deploy or, or, or to develop locally. And I know when you're dealing with things like secrets, it is hyper frustrating if you can't run things locally that have access to environments like what a deployed thing would do. What's the answer there? Have automated taste, uh, automated tastes tests on an integration environment, I think is the right answer here. So you want to have some sort of staging environment and that, you know, the application pipeline doesn't have to not have a staging. Um, you just, you want to make sure it's all automated. So you would run some integration tests there. Yeah. But weren't you asking about like, how would you develop local locally? development? Yeah. Local development. You start up your application. It needs access to um, oh, yeah. Azure, Azure storage, blob storage or, or whatever. And your deployed app will have that because it picks up the secrets and deploys bundles it with the thing when it launches it, because it's an environmental thing. How do you get that locally? Okay. This is where somebody's going to come back with the textbook answer of, well, you would have a different interface that for your local development versus your, uh, your integration development and, you know, or your integrated, uh, you know, your, your deployed environment. And, you know, you'll, you're, you're not, you know, that code, you know, get tests, and when it's deployed, but you have this other set of code that's tested when you're de- writing code locally and blah, 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 blah. And I call it's hot like, garbage on that. Yeah. I mean, I, that's why I said, that's why I worded it the way I did. Like, you know, somebody's going to come out with that answer, but, uh, that's what I was going to do. Oh, I was say. go ahead. <laughs> that's go, what you were going to do. Ahead. No, I was literally going to say that because I am so tired of like, say, well, I want to change the color of a div on a, an HTML page. Ooh, but I need the database and I need my middle tier. And now I need some, you know, some cloud storage stuff. And now I need some other thing. It's like, oh my gosh, I just wanted to make some simple UI change. And now it's taking me an hour just to get my environment set up. Like why the heck like Angular, React, all these things have, uh, you know, these frameworks have really easy ways to kind of mock data and be able to work like locally. Like why don't I take advantage of that? So here's, here's the thing. Hold up though. I think, so I agree with you. But I think we're talking about two different things. Yes. So right there, what you're saying is, why do I have to spin up the world just to work on my UI? Completely agree with that. You should have a mock API that you can use so that you can work on your API. Agree. What I'm talking about is when you're actually working on that backend piece that is talking and writing objects to Azure Blob Storage or Google Storage or, or AWS S3, whatever. How do you how do you do that locally? When the only thing that has the rights to these environments in the way that you're going to deploy it, by the way, because there's a difference between running with your local credentials, talking to a cloud service versus using some service accounts credentials that they don't want people to have. Like, and that's, that's where I'm talking about. I I totally agree with what you're saying. APIs and mock APIs should be used there. But when you actually need something to work the same way locally that it's going to work in a deployed environment, how do you do that? If the only thing that can get it to you is the application pipeline based off what they're saying. Uh, Here's the hard truth is uh, working on the cloud sucks. (laughs) <laughs> and it's going to cost you a lot of money. You're going to constantly be doing these weird hacky things in order to try and make your local like prod sometimes and make it very much not like prod other times. And I don't know any other way to deal with it other than just like changing your crap around all the time. Well, <laughs> Man, if, the we're, truth. if we're talking about, if we're talking about uh cloud development then, and, and we're talking about specifically like maybe Kubernetes specific development, the Kubernetes best practices book would tell you that each developer should be able to have their own environment. And they, (laughs) they go into deep, they go that, that book, um, I'll, I'll provide a link to it, 
but the that book they go into detail about different patterns and ways that you can uh, each developer could have their own environment to where you know if you know it wouldn't be a problem because you would have your own uh deployed secret server or whatever it is that you're trying to deal with that you know even locally if you wanted to uh change a a, a your URL or IP address or port to point to something that is in your uh, deployed Kubernetes environment that you could, because they, in that book, they didn't even talk about using something like a scaffold to do it locally. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting what you said, because I was not speaking about Kubernetes specifically, but that too is also something that a company has got to be what Joe said, right? That stuff gets expensive quick. You got a bunch of projects spun up for each developer and they're all, you know, running resources or whatever, I, you know, but maybe it saves you a lot of money in developer time, right? It, possibly. Yeah. And, and trying to run stuff locally too, it, get, it gets big. You know, you're trying to work on a website and now you're installing, a, you know, two different data. We, we did a survey, right? Like two different databases, uh, at least one middle tier, you know, some services and yeah, it just, uh, it's unwieldy. It's hard to work on and have your IDs open too. It's yeah. a tough problem. It's frustrating. And the the other thing that we've talked about too, that, that can get really frustrating is a lot of times you end up with, with some sort of hacky thing to, so that you can work locally, right? Like, so instead of using S3 storage or, or, um, you know, Azure blob storage or whatever, there are some tools for, for faking that locally, but let's assume that there's not, then people might do something like go to a men IO, uh, men dot IO, type of blob storage, but now you're not actually using the same thing that you're going to be using in another environment. And that's, so it's like you're testing and your stuff's working here, but maybe your calls aren't exactly the same when they get deployed out. So it's a frustrating thing. So while I agree that this application pipeline is the only thing that should be able to deploy to an environment, I hate it that local development environments are really not included in in a lot of these things, like it is sometimes it's really hard to set up that stuff in, in a way that makes sense anyways. Yeah. I wanted to call out too, that the, their link to the a definition for the application pipeline is actually comes from a book called a uh, continuous delivery, reliable software releases through build test deployment and automation. So, Ooh. All right. Uh, want I, to take the next I'll one? include a link to, uh, I, I just pulled up the book cause this was the book I was talking about, by the way, it's an O'Reilly book, uh, Kubernetes best practices. So, um, we'll have a link to it, but if you have the ACM subscription, uh, because this is a O'Reilly book, you can read it that way. Excellent. Nice. Um, so, uh, like we mentioned, the application pipeline needs to be the authority. So, if the, here's a direct quote. If the pipeline says everything looks good and that should be enough, uh, it forces the focus to stay on what reasonable means. And that's from Dave Farley. Yeah. I don't so, know who that is, but it's a good quote. Yeah. The, bu- the bullet point that, that you skipped over there, though, is the pipeline, desert, the, uh, the pipeline decides if the work is releasable, which is. Yeah. Interesting. Not a manager, not the QA team, right. the pipeline. And if your pipeline can't make the decision because it's not good enough, well, it's because your pipeline is not good enough. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But it makes and sense. That's hard, though. I mean, this, to say that's a minimum viable is like, ooh, okay, that's a, that's the that's the biggest stumbling block that I saw here. That's a, that's a tough order. Take some time. Well, I mean, it goes back to like just having uh, you know automated tests at every level. 
And then that way the system can decide like, okay, you've passed all the test, uh, the test gates where like, and, and at every level, what I mean is if you go back to our DevOps handbook and uh, the Phoenix project, unicorn project, like that, that series of books, right. There's, um, you know, tests get slower and slower over time, uh, depending on like what level it was. Right. So your unit tests are like super fast. And then you would get into like integration tests and, uh, end to end tests and user acceptance tests and whatnot. And so like, you know, if you've thought of it as a pyramid where like the bottom of that pyramid are all the unit tests, they're like lightweight, they have no external dependencies, um, highly reproducible, you know, results. And then, you know, integration tests that might depend on something like, so now you had to slow down because you had to like deploy an environment before you could even use it. You had to have a database up and running and things like that, or a web server or something that could respond to, uh, to a, a call. Um, you know, like each level would get a little bit slower as it would go through it. But, uh, you know, if you, live in this utopia where you have that and you could rely on that as your, your, your gates, then, you know, you get to a point where you're like, okay, it passed, everything passed. And like, now let's kick off an automated deployment to, yeah, just, you know, it's literally, I I just don't like the idea that, and I I mean, I get it, but just, we're saying like, this is the minimum viable CD. If you are uh, starting on a contiguous delivery project uh, at work, the first thing you got to do is set up an application pipeline that you can absolutely trust to do production deployments. It's like, well, that's going to take a few years. Well, <laughs> it's something that, I mean, and that's why I refer to it as the utopia. Because in my mind, like, so to your point, this does not happen overnight. This is no. This is a long, slow process that, you and the team have to be committed to evolving towards. And it starts with, okay, how about if we agree on like, this is how we're going to do our, our continuous integration. So let's agree on like what the, what the merge strategy and like what that's going to look like in terms of like, get, you know, how we're going to branch and things like that. Then you build on top of that to say like, okay, uh, let, let's have some, let's let's figure out like how can we script a make a repeatable build process okay now we've done that hey i wonder if i can like make that part of a pr gate uh you know so that now i can like verify that the thing even builds before you're allowed to merge in okay i got that what if i like write some tests too and like okay i got some tests now can i like automate the the execution of those tests as part of another pr gate and you just keep going and going and going until like you know uh you I haven't been in this environment that, that I speak of, but <laughs> I, I totally want to be in this like utopia where you do have like, you know, new environments that are spun up automatically as part of a, a test. And like, you know, it runs through a series of integration tests. It runs through a series of end to end tests, uh, you know, and then decides, okay, all of that's done. Let's deploy to production automatically because I just like that everything passed because yeah, no humans does they're not there. Yeah. Cause, cause smaller, the smaller you can make the change that makes its way to production, the easier it is to debug that, that issue. So like, that sounds like an amazing dream. I want to live there. I'm not yeah, going to let Jay Z take me down. Well, here's the thing though. This this project is framed literally as the minimum viable CD, and the the first argument, the very like thesis of this whole thing, is the belief 
that you must per- put a certain core set of principles in order to reap the benefits of con- continuous delivery. So we're saying these are the things that you need to reap the benefits. And one of the first ones is utopia. Yeah. Right? Like that's it's a tough sell. So I don't but, know. I just kind of – But in fairness way. though, if you set those things up ahead of time, like it, you know, it's like Outlaw just said. He just rattled off three or four things that, that you'd want in place already. If you knew that when you're setting this thing up, then it's not as terrible. We don't have a bunch of things already there to break it, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, it's not it's not fair. It's like in order to get to uh, reap the benefits of continuous delivery, first you have to start a new project. <laughs> otherwise, you're never going to get there. It's like, well, wait a second. Well, I mean, we we've definitely been in these in like okay, so you you joke right and talk about small projects, but we've absolutely been in those environments where like. Netlify, we've talked about countless times, right? That is an example that is that meets this objective. Like you That's can what they did. extremely yeah. easily set up, you, you know, Netlify to like point to your Git repo, and it'll automatically deploy it. And then, you, and so you could come at it backwards. Like you have the automatic deployment to Netlify, but you might not have any tests. Just like as soon as a commit's made to your GitHub repo, Netlify is like, oh, new code, I guess. I assume it works. And then you could start putting some gates onto the, you know, whatever the branch is that you're serving from. In this case, they the they advocate for it being called trunk that, uh, you know, you could then put in a gate that says, okay, hey, you can't, you can't just manually uh, commit or merge to this. It has to go through a PR. Okay, now that I have that one on there, Oh, the PR also has to perform a build that succeeds. That's important. <laughs> and then you add on like, oh yeah, now we do some tests. But but we can all agree what Jay-Z said, there was a lot of truth in it, right? Like, oh, absolutely. If you file new project, it's a totally different ball game than if you're trying to wrap this thing around some existing monstrosity that's been there that's got 20 heads, right? So um legacy yeah, code I mean, is impossible. And it's like, hard. <laughs> It really, it really does. Like there was another argument. I forget where, um, where, ah, dang, where did I see this? Where they were talking about like, it's almost, um, you're going to rewrite it soon anyways. Like, you know, why they were kind of making the argument, like why put a lot of effort into it? You're going to rewrite it anyways, eventually. So just like focus on the other parts of the good stuff. And eventually that old legacy thing is going to die, which I don't know that I agree with. But now yeah. that I can't even remember uh, where I read it, you're like, who's the they in that? Michael, is that you? Are you the they? Yeah, it doesn't even matter. All right, so so the next one up that we have here is the artifacts created by the pipeline must meet the organization's requirement for being deployable. And, and really all that meant was the organization has to have a list of what are the non-negotiable things that have to be there, right? It might be security. Like you might have to have had RBAC stuff in everywhere, right? Or it might be that, you know, hopefully there's no errors in it, but for whatever the thing is, they have a list of requirements and that determines whether or not this thing is releasable. Yep. I mean, this goes back to Jay-Z's like list of hard things. Oh, totally. Because, it, because one of the ones that they gave would be like responsiveness. So now it's like, oh, okay. So you actually have a mature enough automated deployment system to where you're measuring the responsiveness of the page and that you can automatically tell like, oh, hey, Michael's new commit has decreased the responsiveness of the page. So we're going to fail that deployment or fail that build. It can't 
make its right. way out into production. That's a pretty mature pipeline. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this stuff happens overnight, right? Like people build on this as time goes on. But um, good. It's all great guidance too. It's all good stuff. It's just the name minimum viable CD kind of <laughs> missells it, in my opinion. Yeah, it kind of does a little bit. That Dave Farley guy, by the way. So this particular one that on um, that last bullet point about the definition, there was a link to a YouTube video for a financial tech company that actually has a deployment pipeline that they step through all the things in. So I want to say it's like an 18 minute video, something like that. So it's probably worth checking out just to see. And and in my opinion, this is one of the ones that are done pretty well where they draw on boards in front of them. So it's not super boring. Um, This is one of those few times where like if your boss caught you watching YouTube, you'd be like, no, this is for work stuff. Promise. Good. Totally good. Yeah. 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 And Jim, uh, Jim Hummelson, design painter evangelist on, uh, on uh, Psychosynthesis, this guy a few times. So I've watched a few of his videos. It's good stuff. It's really good yeah, stuff. He's good. Um, all right. So the next one we have, oh, I like this one too. Th- this one I actually really love, and it's not that hard. Uh, the artifacts, they should be considered immutable. Meaning after the pipeline built them, nobody can touch them. Doesn't matter what for, you just, <laughs> if anything touches it, it's invalid. Throw it away. Yeah, um, and that's not, that's not, hard to accomplish necessarily like if you have like a, an artifactory or something like that but but there is a a thing about like well hmm, i guess even with artifactory though you could fake it because if you didn't like up the version number and you just like constantly rewrote to the same destination same path as like here's my application dll dot you know version 1.0.0 right. you know, or whatever if you um, had the creds to push them up there, yeah, you could totally fake it. But but you shouldn't well, have even, access to it. It doesn't have to be you, though, is my point. Like, even if you had a, a not mature build pipeline and only uh, your build pipeline could push to Artifactory, for example, right. and you weren't uh, including any kind of, like, uh, build version number or, like, the version number was never getting incremented and you were just constantly writing to the same spot, that would not meet this requirement. Mm, good call. So this next one's interesting to me because this is a cultural thing, right? And this is where you're going to have to get buy-in from the entire company from the top down in order to make this happen. All feature work stops if the pipeline status is red. This is the Andon cord at Toyota. You guys seen this in practice? Uh, so I, uh, I've been to places where like if the build was broken, nobody could merge. And so, like, nobody could, you couldn't, like, you literally couldn't merge because the build was broken. And it was miserable. <laughs> but I that's it. different than stop all feature work, right? Like, this is basically, like, yeah, all hands on deck. Thing. And even then, like, it made sense. So, like, it was frustrating when you're, like, you go to check something in, like, especially if you're working late or something. You're, like, oh, wait, someone broke the build an hour ago and they left for the day. And now I can't check my stuff in. And I told my boss I'd be there tomorrow. I need to get it to QA tomorrow. So, it means I'd get in tonight, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's frustrating. All, yeah, so it's kind of weird. Like the build's broken, so everyone puts the keyboard down. It's like a strange notion to me, but I've heard it several times now. To me, the problem here is that, like, well, how did – I mean, the thing I didn't like about this one is it seems like then the pipeline is kind of immature if it let something get into the pipeline that impacted everybody else like that. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm I, sure there's a million edge cases that we can't think of off the top of our head, right? Where it's DB migrations. <laughs> and like, think about how hard it is to test database migrations. Like, sure, it worked in the, in, you know, on the local machine because I didn't have a, you know, age old database. Like, maybe it worked on an integration environment, uh, the PR gate, because that's a new environment spun up from scratch, but it didn't work on the staging environment because it actually tried to apply a migration on a, another environment and it, it didn't work. And so now the pipeline's down. Or what, what if your Jenkins server went full on space? Like th- there's so many different things that can happen here that are, that are kind of hard to think about, but it is interesting because this implies that your, um, continuous delivery pipeline is one of the most important things that you have going. And that might be true. Like if you've actually done this the way that they're saying here, it's what allows you to move quickly in your development world. So I don't know. I kind of get it, but I also see a lot of managers being like, what, what are you doing? Not over there banging on the keyboard. I, I, th- I really think that the way it should be worded and this isn't going to be the wording for it, but something to this effect would be that it's not that like everybody stops their work. It's that everyone is available and will stop their work. Should I tap them yeah. to say, Hey, uh, like, cause you brought up a Jenkins. Like, that's a good example. Like if the build server, like that might be a reason why that pipe, the pipeline would go red, right? Cause the build server itself is out. And so like you might not be, um, you know, have credentials to even get to the build server at that level of detail or whatnot, or, or might not even know to like diagnose, like that is the problem, but you can see like, Hey, there's something wrong with the build server. And then you could tap the person who is responsible for the build server or, or n- might have the, the keys to the castle and know a bit more, more about it and say like, Hey, can you help? There's something problem. And that person should be willing to say, okay, let me you know, drop rather than like giving you like, oh, really, come on, you know, kind of attitude about it. So, yeah, I but, think outlaw just became a signatory. Let's put that PR in. Yeah. And uh, you'll be up on the page here pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was worded really well. That's that's actually a good way to do it. Um, the next one is, and this this is kind of a no-brainer, you must have a production-like test environment. Everybody should have that. If you don't, get one. Uh, those are really easy to do. Uh, so, okay. okay. Well, <laughs> it's super, super simple, right? It's easy. Next one's easy. This is an example. That's an example of one that, like, we're going to come back to it. It's like, <laughs> put a put a put a pin in that one. Oh man, uh, the next one we have is must have rollback on demand capability. That's fun. <laughs> it codes no problem, right? It's the persistent storage, which is yes. How do you? That yeah, look on Outlaw's that? face was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. So this rollback thing, right? Like, if we're talking application code, sure, we're talking yeah, about databases, huh? what man yeah data migration is so tough like it, it's such a tricky thing to get right and no one ever like problems happen it does and rolling back is tough it doesn't or, even necessarily have to be like data any kind of persistent storage like it could be keys yeah totally like rolling back keys could be could be an issue you know which means to, to do these rollbacks that really means you have to have really good backup plans in place for everything and be able to push a button and flip all the way back on all of it Ooh, so that means like stopping the whole system, right? Stopping everything. Hey, and it could also mean losing data, which may not even be possible if you're talking like we mentioned the financial tech industry earlier. If you're in a fintech, dude, there's transactions that came through. You ain't touching that stuff. So, I mean, rollback is, you know, know there I like might be some transactions you're okay with them like losing. You're like, okay, <laughs> that one's fine. I didn't mean to spend a million dollars. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that one, that one's hard. Like rollback is not an easy thing. Um, I like this one. 
application configuration is deployed with the artifacts. Now, what I liked about this one is they called out in, in an article or on their page or whatever that they said that people use the word config so loosely across the industry. And I completely agree with this. It's actually really irritating. The config they're talking about is environmental configurations, right? Like if you have a connection set up for your database, then that config is going to be different in dev. It's going to be different in QA and in prod, right? That's what they're talking about. Application config stuff that actually ships with the code is not included in, the, in this. It is only environmental stuff. And I actually like that distinction. Well, I, can I, can I read the way they worded it? Cause you may, I think it summed it up pretty good. Cause this is actually taken from wait for it. The 12 factor app. Uh, so th- they were saying that the word, the term was uh, overused and underdefined across the industry and that they embrace the 12 factor app definition where config is environment specific, i.e. it varies by deployment and application config is internal to the app and does not vary by environment. Yeah. And I love that distinction because it's, it makes it clear. Yeah. So here they're talking about application config. Application config is deployed with the artifacts. Oh, yes. So yes. that's the configuration does, that does not does de- not change change from one environment to the next. Yes. If if you're going to support, I don't know, let's say like, uh, what would be a good example? You're going to limit, you know, like, hey, I can support uh, 500 requests per app server before I need to create a new one, right? Then that's not going to change per environment. That's probably a horrible example. That was a bad example. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm not gonna quit my day job. Let's put it that way. I have a note. Creating examples is not a good thing. I have a node with one gig of memory in dev, but in prod I got fifty gigs. <laughs> so we kind of started with the end a little bit, or you know, this uh this web place starts with the end a little bit talking about continuous delivery. So we're actually going to kind of take it, uh, make it a little bit more personal now and talk about uh, continuous integration, which is kind of a smaller topic. It's a little bit easier to get your head around. And uh, the first piece of advice they give is to use trunk-based development, which we're going to talk about. That's the kind of the, like, the last leg of this thing here. So, you know, just for now, we're going to just quickly say that it basically means uh, all developers uh, releasing, you know, pull requesting and uh, deploying, not deploying, uh, integrating into a single branch, like a, you know, a master or main kind of thing. Um, and, there is one other thing here that's, um, that they advocate for. And I've read, you know, we talked about DevOps handbook and we've seen this a few times. So basically saying to integrate daily at a minimum in order to keep your uh, integrations really small. Yeah. This one, uh, you can go back. I want to say it was like episode 90, maybe something like that. Uh, I'll find their exact episode, but uh, we talked about the various Git workflows and you know, this trunk based development, they, they, the minimum viable CD actually advocated for using trunk. If I remember right. Yes. Um, as the, the branch name. Um, <clears throat> but, but basically this workflow is you have that one branch and you're always merging into that only ever m- merging into that branch. Um, so that's another one that I wanted to put a pin in. Yeah. I was going to say, and we're going to come sure back to have things. But it, the other thing that I will say is they say daily at a minimum. If you go back to our DevOps um, episodes that we did, like as frequently as possible is the best, right? But if you can only do it once a day, fine. But but you do want to do it frequently. Oh, man. 
I'm so good. I nailed it. Episode 90. That's ridiculous, dude. That's yeah, been no. 80 somewhat episodes ago. <laughs> That's ridiculous. 160 weeks. Yeah. I'm a professional and uh, years. I would like you to respect that. <laughs> That's insane, man. All right. It's <laughs> impressive, but insane. All right. You got the next one, Jay-Z? What are we up on? Yeah. Uh, so uh, idea is that we're going to have some sort of uh, automated testing that runs before you can merge the work. Uh, and so this is kind of like a, well, what I say is like a PR gate, like a pull request gate where something has to, to run. But you can do this uh, also just for uh, actual commits to trunk. Sometimes you'll, you'll see that in a few places. Um, but, you know, GitHub has become so, such an authority here and like just the common workflow. So I, I don't even know the last time I've seen something that forced a, a, a uh, build integration test before you could actually just merge it <laughs> or push your commits up to a branch. Wait, you're saying just because it was in GitHub? I mean, GitHub definitely has support for actions to where you could enforce yeah. that. So how how does that work then? So like I'm working on Trunk. I commit locally. And before I push, what happens? Wait, uh, you no, have you, to put, you, you, you have to PR it. Yeah, I was going to say well, you have I'm to saying, push to your own branch more or less up in GitHub, right? Your, yeah, you push your branch and then you PR right. yeah. your branch into and the And you've got the PR gates. Yeah, so that's the only way that I've ever like worked with this. But uh, later on in the next section uh, on this website, uh, they actually advocate for having small teams working directly in Trunk and committing directly to Trunk. And so I was saying that the, it is possible for you to have like pre or post commit hooks in order to kind of block actions, but it's just weird. So yeah, you can force like some that. sort of, yeah, and, and it's up to, you know, it's client side at that point. Maybe I missed Go that part because I remember them talking about like small branches uh, and that you wouldn't delete, you wouldn't m- merge into a release branch. You know what? It wasn't on this website. It's on the the actual, um, there's a link off to trunkbaseddevelopment.com. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Yeah. And so down here. It's best done with short-lived feature branches. One person over a couple of days maximum flow and flowing through pull request style code review and build automation before integrating and merging into trunk. So uh, very small teams may commit direct to the trunk. Where did I just see that? Cause I didn't see that. And there's a, they got a section here. Small teams will choose to commit push straight to the trunk. Most likely it's because blah, blah, blah goes on. Oh, and I it see re- it relies on the build being fast and really exhaustive. And so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty nasty. I, I don't know if that's disregard yeah, that. That's but, not true. Yeah. Not I think, that. I think the difference here though, is that like that would, that would, uh, go against minimum viable CD. And now you're like off on some other website. So I mean, they link to it as their definition for trunk based development. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? Like this whole notion that small teams may do this. There's no real overhead in creating a branch and PRing into it. So don't ignore that. Don't be committing directly into trunk. It doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, also there's supposed to be an argument like, what what's a small team is a small team like three to five people because isn't that supposed to be like the average the, team the size right team right yeah. yeah like anything larger than that's supposed to be too big you know depending no, on like you get into like different scrum or agile type uh you know organization you know team organizations and they'll tell you that that you're getting too big if you were to go beyond that look the real answer to this for anybody out there managing repos don't allow people to commit directly to that branch they should be so to it 
Would Say solo what? dev. Would you pull requests as a solo developer? Sure. And pr- a review it yourself and approve it and merge it. Uh, okay. I mean, okay. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But but I still, even as a solo dev, it's not that hard to create a branch and push the branch up and BR it in, right? Like, I, I mean, I get it. You're skipping maybe two steps, but you're saving yourself two minutes. Like, it just doesn't, I don't know. I, I, at least I'd once pref- a day, two minutes, at least once a day. <laughs> here's the answer. Here's the answer to Jay-Z's question. If I'm going to solo dev, then no, I'm not going to create a branch and PR and all that kind of, well, I might create a branch just because it be, might be easy if I'm doing like a bunch of multi-development and I might want to like ta- uh, context switch. So right. maybe I would create a branch, but I'm probably not. I'm probably going to work directly off of whatever the trunk is and I'm not going to bother to PR in it. But that's because I hope, or at least the way I've done things is that I already have my tests where I'm running my tests. So any test that I would have done in a bill as a build gate, I'm doing manually myself. So it's definitely not perfect and definitely goes against what they're advocating here. Yeah. Everybody does that. Yeah. That's the way everybody does in solo does. <laughs> but once you get into like the end and teams, you can trust everyone to always run the test. That's right. Yeah. No, once you get into duo dev though, you should be doing these branches. Right. I don't, I don't get right. this. Duet. Yeah. Does? Right. Can we call it that? The, Duet? the PR gate and build it. Does that mean you sing while you do your PRs? That might be good. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you had to make it weird. <laughs> I didn't call right. it duet. Islands in the stream. That, okay, wait. <laughs> that is so, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yes! The earworm oh worked. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so um, as, as part of the, uh, you know, this, uh, these tests that run, uh, the work is also tested with any other work that's automatically uh, brought in as part of that merge. So just make sure it's always up to date. And uh, like we mentioned before, all feature work stops when the build is read and new work does not break already delivered work. Otherwise, it's not allowed, right? It's not allowed in the pipeline. So basically, this utopia is that there's never a regression. That's right. And if there is, everybody stops. So, That's so right. I mean, like, go, no, but going back to your thing from the beginning where you were saying, like, hey, this is mm-hmm. unattainable, unattainable because you start with this utopia definition, then this one is there, right? Like there, yeah. there can never be a regression or you are not a minimum viable CD, uh, environment, which we know there's never, co- there's never well, if you been can't code. Get the minimum. How are you going to get anywhere else? So, so here's the problem, like, right? There's never any code that's delivered. That's always been a hundred percent perfect on every delivery. So this, this is where I think this, this is where language is dangerous and, and incomplete, right? When they say does not all, does not break already delivered work. What does that mean? Does that mean it failed in a build because of a unit test? Does that mean that it failed, um, launching in a deployment environment, right? Like break is such a ambiguous term in, in regards to what we're talking about. If the thing builds, if it passes integrations, passes the unit test and all that stuff, sure. You're going to deliver it, but maybe you find a bug out later and you go, Oh, we need to do a hot fix for that. Right? So I think that's the key, right? If there's any automatic detection of a failure in this process, then you shut it down. Right. But there are going to be problems unless you were just the most amazing developer that's ever seen the face of this planet. How you doing? So, <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I mean, 
they need to, you know, I feel sorry. I mean, I guess we could put it in a pull request, but yes, break needs to be defined in terms of what can be detected automatically. So then if I don't have any detection automatically, then nothing is ever determined to be broken. And I mean, you just release it all. (laughs) (laughs) And as a solo dev, that's what you do. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Gotcha. This episode is sponsored by Shortcut. Have you ever really been happy with your project management tool? Most are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything or too complex for anyone to want to use them without constant prodding. Shortcut is different, though, because it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams, and they're fast, intuitive, flexible, and powerful. Let's take a look at their highlights. Team-based workflows. Individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. Organization-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and vice versa. Tight VCS integration. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Shortcut ties directly to them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface. The rest of Shortcut is just as keyboard-friendly with their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Iterations planning. Set weekly priorities and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burn-down charts and other reporting. So give it a try today at shortcut.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's shortcut.com slash coding blocks. Shortcut, because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. All right. Hey there. This is my uh, Joe Zach radio voice here. This is the voice that I use on the podcast, which uh, I assume you're familiar with by right now. Um, normally, when I'm just at home by myself, and I just uh, mostly just mumble. So uh, tonight, tonight you're getting podcast Joe asking for podcast reviews because we love them. We need them. Uh, we eat off of them. I don't know. <laughs> they, uh, they put the bread in my belly. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. This is this is why uh, Outlaws just over there saying, "Why stop." Stop <laughs> to say that just ask for a review and I'm just here. I'm just not doing it. I'm sorry. We need a but, review uh, with mayonnaise on it is what he just said. Yeah. Right? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to cut. We may have cut the whole 30 minute discussion about mayonnaise off, uh, off of the show. And so you may not know what's going on here. I'm sorry for that. But uh, anyway, if you want more of this nonsense, then leave some reviews and we'll know that this kind of bag, uh, works. So. Well, I- what what happened to like the funny <laughs> reviews? I thought like you know what happened to you know late night DJ or you know NPR voice or you know uh, auctioneer voice like yeah you I just come at it with normal voice like that's an, <laughs> no no this, this we're going back voice. we're going backwards voice. like this is no because this is my dream come true like we're because we were doing those late night voices and I hated it I was like oh god that's so creepy <laughs> I can't I can't take it. Yep. My ears were bleeding when they when I would hear it, but now we're going back. I'm like, I'm going to do cartwheels. Yeah, you started getting used to it, so I had to find something new that you wouldn't like. That's right. <laughs> no, I love this. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, oh crap! All right. Well, if you go to codingblocks.net slash review, we try to make it easy for you. you got all that? <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It's it's definitely a lot better for my mental health now, knowing that we're not doing the late night voices anymore because that was. Oh no, that's not gone. That's, not oh, that's gone. great. It's on a yeah. <laughs> it's on a hiatus. 
Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> now we're going there. You know what else is bad for your mental health is like social media, like Instagram. They say Instagram's bad for your uh, mental health. Really? But what about Jira? Nobody talks about Jira. <laughs> I would concur. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Tim. All right. So uh, we now head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked, what's your container management of choice? And your choices were good old reliable Docker desktop or rancher desktop. I like my container management free and open like the wild west or Podman because the little otters logo is so cute. All right. So episode 179 to trademark rules of engagement. Alan, you are first. I'm going to have to go with number one here. Good old reliable Docker desktop, because I'm going to venture to say that most people didn't even know those other two existed before this survey. So, We'll go with number one. I'm going to go with a strong 50%. Okay. Well, uh, I, uh, I'm just going to lose this one. I'm going to let you win. Uh, because Podman just released version 4.0 the day of, that we're recording this. And uh, they do say that support for Podman on Windows and OS X has been the top priority for this release. And uh, I mean, I didn't have a problem with it before. So I assume it's only better now. And so uh, I'm going to say that... Uh, seventy-one percent of people are going to uh, say that they use Podman. He's going to lose because of big. the logo. <laughs> if you're going to lose, lose big. That's right. Seventy-one percent. That's seventy-one <laughs> percent. That's my final answer. Final answer. Okay. Now, before before I give you these uh, these the results, do you want to phone a friend? <laughs> I wanted to, this is gonna be the first survey that ever uh had a hundred percent I was gonna say, or maybe do you want to eliminate two choices <laughs> <laughs> okay uh well, okay, so uh jay z with the risk uh goes out on a limb at seventy one percent pod man, yep. And Alan takes the conservative approach of good old reliable desk, Docker desktop. I mean, it's in the name, Joe. Good old reliable <laughs> Docker desktop. And, and Alan says 50% of the vote. I feel like I undershot it at this point. I'm not going to lie. Wait for it. Now, don't be surprised when I tell you that Alan won. Oh. <laughs> Docker desktop. Clearly, ninety. I don't think. I think that we. I think that some people were messing with us, honestly, because it only got seventy five percent. And uh, and I'm thinking like, okay, I think the other twenty five percent were pulling our our leg there. Like, you know, I'm not saying that the others don't get usage, but I just think that. You know, if you were to throw this survey out to a, a much larger audience, I think that we would see a sway even more stronger for Docker Desktop. You know, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, but twenty five percent not in Docker is interesting. I think. I think uh, they didn't have their glasses on. I think is what happened. No. Yeah, they they accidentally tapped the wrong button, and then they're like, "Oh man, I can't." Ranch is huge. And hey, Kates and is not, over. K three S is the future. 
Oh man. All right. So I am curious, like anybody that, that, um, you know, chose one of the other ones, leave a comment on this episode, episode 179. So net slash episode 179. Let us know what you're using and, and why it's better. Like that, that's interesting. And it might be that people have moved over now because Docker is charging, right? That's possible. Well, that's, that's when possible. we, when we brought this topic up, that's why we were talking about it. Right, because so Docker maybe, was maybe changing that's their it. licensing. I mean, it's very likely that that's what's going on. So uh, maybe this would even be higher in the future. I don't know. So yeah, yeah, we'll run the survey again in like ten years and see. <laughs> we're we outlaws going to be like, hey, we talked back in episode one seventy nine about this, and we'll be on like episode four hundred. Now I was going to say we'll be on episode two hundred and thirty six. There we go. There we go. Oh man. All right, so um, yeah, so in in Podman was second. In case if you were curious, yeah. Um, all I right, mean, I'm fine with rain. I like all of them. So uh, yeah, where do bad rainbows go? Uh, I'm in pot of gold. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. They go to prism. Oh geez, that's good. But don't that's worry, good. it's a light sentence. Oh, <laughs> it got even better. Thank you, Jesse. All right, so uh, for this episode, since we're talking about uh, minimum viable CD, how mature is your CI/CD pipeline? And your choices are extremely mature. Something like commits are made, bits are built, things are tested, PRs are merged, builds are deployed automatically every time. Or eh, somewhat, as in we build and test PRs regularly, but deployments still require a person to initiate. Or not even close. It's more like Leroy leaves his laptop running in a closet. And when we need a build, somebody walks over and performs the 18 necessary build steps. <laughs> Leroy Jenkins. Yeah. So you're somewhere <laughs> on that. You're, you're somewhere on that spectrum is, is what we're getting at. Uh, all right. Outlaw, you bring us back in this time. What we got? Well, we're going to get into details of trunk-based development. And, I, you know, I think, I'm, well, I'm going to hold off on, like, what my uh, my take is on this. But we, we already kind of gave a description of this. This is basically, like, you have one main branch that all the developers collaborate on that single branch. Now, that's not to say that you as a developer couldn't have a small feature branch. And, you know, like I said earlier, according to the trunk based development site, they actually advocate for working in small feature branches. It's just that you're regularly um, merging back into the trunk branch. And, you know, they even on that, on the trunk based development website um, mentioned that like it, the name doesn't have to necessarily be trunk. So, yeah, and uh, the trick here is to resist any pressure to try and create other long-lived development branches. And sometimes there can be a lot of pressure for that um, because people think that uh, integrating loses time, basically. And so the argument there is that it's just easier to kind of go off with a smaller team and build on their own for a little while. And then later, they'll merge back in and be fine. And uh, trunk-based development says, heck no. 
Yeah. The I mean, arg- oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Nope. You, well, I was going to say that the, the argument is that uh, the simplicity of the structure is more worth anything gain you might get from some other type of structure, right? That like by having everybody constantly merging into that branch, then, you know, everybody's getting those new bits more often. Uh, and therefore, you know, a variety of different people are testing it in ways that they might not even realize that they were testing it. Like, you know, in order to access the website or something like that. Uh, so it's like little things like that because everybody's like working in the same, um, trunk, then you reap more benefits than you would from having teams work in, uh, long lived branches. And anybody who's ever worked in long lived branches knows exactly what we're talking about. And they're probably screaming at their eight track right now. Um, cause that's how they get their podcasts. Right. And, no, just kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're screaming at, screaming at this, like, you know, yes, this long lived branches are difficult. Because the code gets out of, I, I, you know, I guess I should like go on like, why? Why is it difficult, Michael? But, you know, the code gets out of sync quicker in those long branches. And then the merges become awful or can be awful uh, when you try to do that, uh, when you do try to get caught up. And then it has this like uh, self-fulfilling kind of prophecy type of thing because the merge was so painful. You're like, well, I don't want to do that again anytime soon. And so you don't. And then it goes off in this long lived branch again <laughs> that you didn't mean to do. And then, you, and then you're like weeks later, you're like, Oh man, I got to do that again. Uh, now I realize why this is so hard. I never want to do this again. And so you like, you know, slug your way through it. And then you're like, Oh, I'm never doing that again. Not for a few more weeks. And then like rinse and repeat. Yep. Yes. It stinks. <laughs> Yeah, and even on relatively uh, small teams, man, it, it can really eat up a day. Like once once you start getting down that that hill where those things are rolling down, those merges are coming down. Man, it just clobbers everybody that comes after the first one, right? So the first tough one goes in. The next one might have been simple, but it becomes tough. And then the third one's even worse. Like it just seems to keep rolling downhill and gathering speed, and it just destroys time. So. Yeah, the the long lived branches that you're merging into a single trunk or something is is a terrible, terrible approach. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> In the great words of Charles Barkley, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible. Uh, you sound like just like him, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You yeah, didn't I'm, even I, try, Joe. Come on, what? Yeah, Barkley. What? What? You don't know Charles Barkley? I know Charles Barkley. You guys I was terrible. a kid in the nineties. <laughs> see. Uh, so, uh, like we mentioned, you know, for small teams, they recommend uh, committing straight to trunk, uh, with the, and I'm getting this from the trunkbaseddevelopment.com where they mentioned having a so kind of a builder test gate, which is awkward without pull requests, but good news, uh, pull requests are everywhere. And over larger teams, they do say for large teams that you can use short lived feature branches that might live for a couple days max and end with a good PR review and build test gate. Now, you know, uh, we already mentioned that um, there's a split in the websites here. And so minimum viable CD recommends committing every day. And so they're not going to like this short lived feature branch. Uh, but sometimes you got people collaborating on stuff. And so, you know, th- these are kind of two concepts at odds. So you take that with a, a grain of salt here. Uh, and just understand that, you know, the the goal here of minimum viable CD is to have more frequent, smaller um, chunks committed directly into trunk. 
but why? Uh, idea is that our code base, our trunk, is always releasable. It's always in a working functional state. We don't have tags. We don't have I maybe have that stuff too, but, uh, you know, you're not doing any funky stuff. There's nothing special about certain commits or certain, uh, branches or environments. It's just always deployable. And, uh, Google, Facebook, the authors of continuous delivery and the DevOps handbook all advocate for this. This seems to fly in the face of going back to episode 90, uh, when we were talking about the Git flows, uh, or the Git workflows, specifically Git flow. This seems to fly in the face of Git flow because that, particular workflow you would have a branch like a release and a dev and a hotfix type of branch where like those are are you know always around branches and it's a good thing i read ahead here by the way because all the things that you've got listed down there were all the things that i remember that we talked about in episode 90 about why why following this one piece of advice is the greatest thing on earth when it may not be for you for a lot of good reasons. Yep. Uh, so let's get into that. So in the series of questions, but how do we, what about a big feature? How, how do you do a big feature in this particular workflow? Got feature flag it and uh, commit small little chunks, all of which is turned off until you're ready for it. Which, by the way, I don't hate that. I, I like that, actually. I don't hate it, but it does require, like, feature flag can mean different things to different people depending on who you're talking to. Yep. And you really need some infrastructure for it. It's not something that you can just easily do a lot of times, especially across distributed systems. Right. Well, that's why I say it depends on who you're talking to because, you know, you might talk to one developer might just say, Oh, I'll just if def this out or, you know, I'll, I'll like conditional it to where uh, it's hard coded in the code right? to not run, uh, you know, unless it's a debug build or something like that, or, you know, uh, it's just hard coded to not run. And, you know, uh, unless it's like on my machine or something. Um, whereas someone else, another developer might say, Oh, well, uh, it's always available and, you know, unless we like change a, a flag in the database, you know, if we set some value in the database, then it will e- execute that branch. And someone else might say, well, let's use something like, um, uh, what was it? La- launch darkly, I think was the example, uh, an example where, uh, you know, of a feature flag system that you could, you might be, uh, might integrate into it. Lots of different things. And yeah, and like uh, services like LaunchDarkly are kind of famous for being a, a feature flag company. But when they say feature flag, they mean, oh, well, you can turn on just the East Coast or 10% of your users or oh, yeah. uh, only users in this time zone. Or, you know, they're hooked up into all sorts of different stuff. That they, so they have like a lot of flexibility on when and how things are kind of rolled out. And the idea is that it's easy to have like one flag across multiple systems because they've got this kind of third party service that handles it. That's a big level of maturity that's required. If you're going to build that on your own, it's going to take some time. I'm so glad you you brought that up because I totally forgot about that with the ability to like uh, target. Like maybe I only want to target like one percent of my user base just to see like, hey, let, let's get let's start testing this thing out in the wild. Does it work? Does this feature work? Or it, it, and not only does it work, but am I seeing a return on that effort that makes it worth pushing out 
to others. Like maybe, maybe it actually detracts from sales, for example, if this was an e-commerce website. So yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that, uh, services like, uh, LaunchDarkly provide much more capability than just is the feature on or off. Yeah. But, but what you were hitting at here too is what feature flags don't buy you is when there's infrastructure and things that need to be in place or different versions of infrastructure or whatever, right? Like you can't just feature flag that thing away, right? Like, Oh, this, this particular thing runs on version one of Kafka. This one works on version 1.1, right? Like it's using some new, whatever, like that's the kind of stuff that you can't easily feature flag. And so that's where, the answer is not put that into a feature flag. That's probably going to need to be a separate branch where you're testing things out independently. Right. Yeah. It's definitely complicated. Um, we're starting to get into like, remember where I was telling you like, Hey, put a pin on it. Right. right? So one of the other one is, is like, well, but how do we hot fix? Right. And, and the answer here is like, Oh, fix forward. You're always just rolling forward. <clears throat> so while I mean nothing against, uh, Dave Farley or anyone else that's involved with this or the signatories and all that, like, I, you know, I think what they've done here is fantastic, but this whole thing is very strongly slanted towards a website or something that can always be, you know, just, there's only there's only a single version that we need to be concerned about, and we can always just uh, if there's a bug, we can you know put out a new one. Even though they do talk about like you know uh, the ability to roll backwards, it's still the same thing. That's my point. Like this, e- even with the ex- answer of like, hey, how do you deal with a hot fix? You know, like, just fix forward. What I mean by this, that I take issue with this is that, um if you have to support multiple concurrent versions and, and I'm technically getting ahead here cause I see that that was another one, but like, how do we support concurrent uh, releases and are, you know, any work around here related to this minimum viable CD, you can't do some of what they're talking about here. So um, let's, let's imagine that, you know, take, let's go back to that Git workflow episode 90 and uh, one of the th- one examples that we talked about there was a strategy that Microsoft authored that at the re- at the beginning, they didn't really have a title for it. They didn't have anything clever. Like the article was just like get m- branching strategies. Um, and, and they described what was being done within Microsoft. Right. And I know that we have since uh, been big fans of that strategy and amongst are, you know, the three of us, like we've referred to it as the cherry picking strategy whenever we've had to describe it to anybody else where, you know, you, uh, you as the author of some fix, be it a new feature or a, uh, hot fix or whatever, like you were the best person to know, like, Hey, I need to cherry pick it to all these different places. And that works out great when you have to support multiple versions and those other versions might be different branches. Uh, and, and just just to add some color to that too, when we're talking about multiple versions, you can think of multiple things, right? So Outlaw said that 
you know, this, this thing here is very slanted towards like a website or even like software as a service, right? Like you're providing some sort of service API that people hit and they're always doing that. What if you, even if you are doing software as a service, what if you've had something out there that's running for two or three years and you need to release a new version of this, but it'll break the other stuff. Well, you might have a totally separate release of this same API out there. Or if you have software that's installed on a person's computer, right? It's very likely that, um, you know, Windows XP wasn't completely thrown away when people were done with it. They had Windows 10 and they had Windows Millennium, which was great. Um, but the whole notion is what he's saying is, okay, a fix comes out. You can't just put it in the latest, right? Like you might need it in XP because there was a big thing there and you still have a lot of customers you're supporting. And then you also need it in, in windows millennium and maybe it didn't exist in windows 10. So it's not something you bring forward. So that's where like you have to know your software and how it's delivered and how people use it and how it lives in the wild. Right. If you only ever own one service API endpoint that anybody ever hits, sure, this this whole thing of always going into that one branch is great. But when you have something where you're supporting multiple releases, multiple versions out there, whether it's something that you own or whether it's something that's installed on somebody else's computer, that strategy is going to fall apart quickly. And, and I mean, we went over it pretty in-depth on Episode 90 and the reasons why each one of them work in different environments. Um, I got one sidebar question though. Tangent alert. You you don't use Windows often, do you, Alan? What did I say? I don't your remember. Windows do. references are really up to date. XP? <laughs> well, 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 you remember XP? That was a good one, though. Yeah, it was a good one. It, it, the no, reason why I was, I'm just teasing. Up. I'm just teasing. I'm just but, teasing. But, but you remember Gibson, right? Like Steve Gibson was like, I'm never leaving XP because, you know, he loved that one. So at any rate, like XP is like the, the first great one that I can think of. Yeah, and I, me I was, was just, like the worst. Like you didn't talk about like, you know, <clears throat> Windows 7 or 8 or 10 or 11. God, I couldn't even like think you of went them all the way back to <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, why do you, while while we're at it, let's talk about Windows 3.0. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean 3.11 is where it was really at. <laughs> oh, you know what's funny is I'm, I'm on Windows 11 right now and I kind of like it. So it, it, right. I was on a joke though. Yeah, um, no, but funny. yeah, I, I mean that, that that was a big thing that I that you know I take with some of this because in the problem that I have with this is that a lot of what's being discussed here doesn't have to uh, be only for like websites and services and things like that, or like mobile games or or, or mobile apps where, you know, you're going to put out the latest version and that's the version you're supporting, you know, kind of situation. You can still do a lot of what is in here, even for like an an application that will be installed on somebody else's computer or device. There's still a lot of this stuff that can be done, but there are parts of this where it's like immediately shut the doors. Like, well, you know, you're you're you are forgetting about a large part of the development world that you know uh, where you do need to support multiple versions, for example. And so in this trunk based development, if you're not going to, if everything has to be merged into this main trunk and you can't have these long lived branches, which might be those releases, right. Then, you know, I, I don't know what the workaround is. 
Directories. No. <laughs> directory. <laughs> no. Version one directory or is it two directory version? Well, I mean that don't, I don't mean joke. you joke, but you joke, but uh that was yeah. basically how TFS versioning worked, right? We've seen it in real code bases too. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean you could do it inside of Git too if you wanted to, I guess, but which is where your joke is coming from. But uh Yeah, they didn't even address it at all. I I looked at the FAQs and stuff trying to figure out like both trunkbasedevelopment.com and minimum viable CD, I couldn't find anything about it. They did have a section on uh, multiple consecutive releases, which I thought was really bizarre. Uh, we can talk about that in a second, but I could not find anything for multiple concurrent releases, even though we could like come up with several examples. Hey, wait, I want to know about this. <laughs> What's this multiple consecutive? Yeah, so there was an FAQ for multiple consecutive, and at first I misread it, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. Here's what I was looking for. But no, they were talking about when a, a company is working on multiple releases at the same time. For example, maybe uh, half of our team is working on a release that's going to come out in March, and the other half is working on a release that's going to come out in uh, June. And when the March team gets done, they're going to maybe come over and work on the June team. Or maybe they'll become the September team or something. So the, the, it's kind of like working on different steps. And there's people that are working on stuff that's going to be released a lot sooner than someone else. Um, so, you know, you can imagine if there's like some big feature that's going to take your team two years to build. And but the stuff that you also need to get delivered next month, you're, you know, you're going to split that out. And what they argued here is basically that, uh, and there's a funny quote here, uh, what you have got is the perfect setup for disaster born from the random bad news event, which is the, the, the idea that um, you know, you're going to have this one team that's off, uh, you know, working. Is it, you're basically splitting up your code base at this point, and it's you don't even have long-lived features. You've got long-lived teams in a weird way, and so uh, when you try to bring these things back together, it's going to be just as problematic as having separate feature environments or um, separate. Uh, long-lived branches so they said it's disaster and what you should try to do is basically get everyone working in the same trunk and if you release stuff later fine but that you should try to not have these big kind of milestone-esque releases and use feature flags so everybody working on the march release is working off trunk everybody working off the june release is working off trunk also yeah it's or okay to have trunk. things delivered at separate times you know that's right. not a problem it's just the idea that they were saying is like having these kind of like multiple releases that were planned out you know way ahead of time it just you know in, in a way they're almost kind of pitching agile a little bit with this faq i, I mean well, look, I, I don't hate the idea of of both of them working in trunk what i hate is if there is a release in March and that's going to live somewhere independent of the release in June at some point, not having that branch for March to be able to come back and do things to doesn't make sense. Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, in that example, I, I still like the idea of like, this is where, you know, write your code and just however you get, however you make it not executable, then fine, you know, make it to where it can't, if that's a feature flag or something else, as long as it, it isn't getting, uh, the, the, the later team could be developing and just crafting it in a way that it, it isn't executable at the moment, or you can't, you have to know like an obscure path to get to that branch or whatever, you know, however right. that works, that, that part's fine with me, but you know, I'm still stuck on the previous issue <laughs> Yeah, in my yeah, head, I, like I, my head was exploding even as listening to you describe this one, because I'm like, you know, in a real world, you might have customers that, okay, to rewind on that one, you know, I could, I was envisioning like somebody arguing like, well, you just shouldn't be in that type of situation where you have that uh, support those multiple conversion concurrent versions, and I'm like, 
in my mind, you know, I'm like, well, there are definitely real world situations where depending on like how big your product is and what type of customers you are, like if you're serving like fortune 500 companies, those companies are slow to move. And oh, so, yeah. you know, you, you're going to have a one of those customers who it's a significant amount of money and they're going to say, I'm not willing to move off of version 1.0 yet. And you might be, you know, already on version three. And, you know, it's not that they don't see that it's a, that the versions are great. They just don't want to undertake the time and effort to do the upgrade for whatever reason, you know, they, they don't view those improvements as worthwhile and they're not going to do it. It, it. There's companies that have a variety of reasons for why, like, you know, they might only upgrade some particular system on a schedule. Like, Hey, we'll do that every two years or whatever their reasons are that make it to where you have to support multiple concurrent versions. Yeah. And it just makes sense to me that now they're giving me business advice. You know, they're not telling me what to do with my code and how to deliver my code. They're telling me how to run my business. And, uh, you know, a great example here is Kubernetes. Kubernetes releases a version three times a year. And you can look and see what's coming out in those next version, couple versions for the year. And they are not releasing this stuff in point releases and like they're not releasing day to day because they really care about stability and reliability and getting the cloud vendors to support the features as they come online. So there's a whole lot of communication that needs to happen because we've got these big enterprise customers that all need to be on the same tree train and come out every three months on a schedule after being talked about. So that's a great example where Kubernetes has multiple concurrent releases, first of all, because they're still putting bugs into multiple old versions for long-term support. And they're also, they've got these big milestone releases. So they both got concurrent and consecutive releases. And there's people, you know, it's not like they're just choosing to start working on the things that are coming out later this year. Later, they're talking about it now. They're working on it now. They've got this stuff off in seven branches. And it's not ideal, but it's working pretty well for them. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that pretty much sums up where like, you know, when I was mentioning earlier, you know, Hey, put a pin in that topic. Let's come back to it. It, it was things that kind of, you know, flew in the face of like, well, okay, that works great for your business. It doesn't necessarily work great for every business. And if we're going to create something that is, you know, the minimum viable standard for, you know, the industry, then I think we should be more honest with, you know, all development if that's going to be the minimum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then build on top of that. Like, here's the minimum for a website. Here's the minimum for an API. Here's the minimum for a software as a service. Here's the minimum for a, a, a user installed application or whatever. Like, let's build on top of it, but let's not start the minimum. It's something that isn't uh, realistic for you know, anybody. Off. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there there were definitely parts yeah. that are that are hard, but you know, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm with you though. It's a really good. I'm I'm definitely glad I I read about you know read it and um I, I agree with everything you said. It's just uh, I I would absolutely not call it minimum. <laughs> you know, I think minimum Ideal. is the code should be built on every uh, commit. Ideal. I like that, and you should be able to deploy uh, via an automation system. That to me is minimum viable CD. And everything else is, is, you know, a matter of maturity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't mean any of that as a, as a, you know, a, a, a negative to any of the signatories on, on this project, you know, I, yeah. 
even though it might sound like I'm being harsh, I really don't mean it that way. Um, you know, yeah, I do say I do think uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't I don't mean to sound harsh, just like you said, but it, it is kind of off putting to say like, hey, people, this is what you need to do to be minimum viable CD. Like, don't get stressed about about all the details. This is all you have to do to get the ball rolling, and then you can take it and evolve from there. And like step step one is a mountain, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so it's right. just it's off putting to beginners, you know. So I guess the, the the takeaway from this is that if you're listening to this and you were like, oh my gosh, I can never get to there. Like you're not alone, I guess is right. the, the takeaway from that. Like it's you're in good easy. company. Yeah, it's not easy. Or at least you're in our company. I don't know if it's good, but you're in our <laughs> company. How's that? Well, we'll see. Well, then we got a survey, right? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, do. Survey, we do. We do. We do. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, all right. We're the only ones that are not doing. <laughs> Everybody's be like, ours is perfect. Yeah. How about how about I say this? Like, should any should this get back to any of the signatories and they're kind of like upset with me or anything I've said? How about if I if I try to uh, you know change their mind by asking or or letting them know that the and I don't know if you guys even knew this that T shirts is actually short for Tyrannosaurus shirt. Did you know that that that's what the T stands for? No, in t-shirt is that, is that true i know there's a punchline here we're waiting no i think it's true <laughs> it's absolutely true why would i make this up it's because of all the small arms you know uh. <laughs> see i knew it all right so so uh you can't be mad at me now all right so uh with that yeah, we, we'll have a whole bunch of links uh to the resources we like for this episode um you know, definitely minimum org is going to be in there. Trunk based development.com is going to be in there. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's going to be a whole bunch of links in this episode. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week or tips. I have a few today. Oh, all right. Here we go so again. Well, let's shut back, it yes. down. It's going to be like 18 hours later. That's right. Coming back strong. All right. So first, this is for anybody else that may ever have to do this. I'm going to save you some time. You cannot set environment variables in a Java application. I don't know why I naively just assume that, hey, this should be a thing, right? It's not, and it's really frustrating when you need it. So just as some background, uh, if you're trying to authenticate into the Google Cloud project or Google Cloud platform, uh, the way that they suggest you do it is set an environment variable with a path to your key. Well, you can't do it in the Java app itself. You got to do it in environment variables being either passed to the Java application on the command line, or it actually needs to be an environment variable. So just be aware of that. I wasted way too much time on that, and it's really frustrating. So but don't it makes sense, though, right? <clears throat> it makes sense yeah. when you think about it, right? Because what does a yes. Java app run in? Yeah, it's a virtual machine, right? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I don't care. I'm still upset about it. Still <laughs> I want upset. that virtual machine to be able to manipulate the real machine. Right. And, 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 and let me save you some more time because the way that I am is I'm like, I can make this happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. So I tried to make it happen. And I even found some hacks out there that apparently did work at one point in time, but Java has since closed a lot of those loopholes. So it just doesn't work. So just don't waste huh. your time. We might call those as bugs then. Yeah. Bugs. Maybe. I don't know. 
it's also weird. Like environment variables are usually read like when the you know application starts and then they kind of forget about. It. So it's kind of a weird thing to to set it and read it. But I understand why you want to do it. Like you got like a, a secret server or something, and you go out and get the credentials, and then you want to pass it somewhere else. How do they recommend it? Set environment variable. Okay, let me just what? Yeah, can't do it. Yeah, yeah. And you know the worst part is it'll even allow you to get the environment variable collection, and it even has the put function on that collection. But it blows up and says you can't put something into an immutable collect. Whatever, man, just don't do it. So all you people out there dealing with Java, I hopefully just saved you some hours of frustration. Um, <clears throat> so I came up with that after I actually found this one from Lars Oncelius. I hope I said your name right. I don't know that I said it terribly wrong. But this was over way better our, than I would have said it. <clears throat> okay, that's good. That's good. Um, so this was over in our Slack channel in the tips, uh, in our Slack community in the tips channel. Um, this one's actually pretty cool. And I, I highly recommend that everybody do this, including the other two guys sitting on this call. It's terms and conditions dot game. And it's just a funny little game about all the way that websites are trying to trick you into stealing your private information. Cause we know since the GDPR stuff, that's all popped up here in the past year and a half to no, Oh man, three years now, I think, um, like every site you go to now, there's a pop-up that comes up like, Hey, you want to accept these cookies or you just want to accept everything. It's like, well, if I don't click the customized thing, then they're going to take more than what I want. It's just annoying. Right? So this is actually a pretty fun little game that I spent a little bit too much time on. And then one more, and that one, that one, I forgot to mention though, <clears throat> that cause that one was from Lars and he is the one who told me, uh, where the name t-shirt actually came from. So thank you, oh, Lars. Very nice. Hey, he gets two mentions on this one. And then this last one, while Ryan didn't actually give this to me for this episode or as a tip, he has sold this hardcore to at least two of us on this call. And, and he, he loves these things. So Ryan monster, if you want to hit him up on Twitter or whatever, or even if you want to see him over in Slack, there's this thing called test containers. And I thought this was apropos to this particular episode because we were talking about unit testing and, and integration testing and all that test containers are pretty interesting because what they allow you to do is in a Docker type of an environment, instead of having to spin up full blown Postgres or SQL server or, or Kafka or any of these kind of things, you can have these test containers that hook up and work as an integration test that you do. So you don't actually have to have a full blown other server environment set up. It'll launch with your tests. And then that way, let's say, let's say for instance, you want to test a, a procedure out in Postgres, right? It could create the database, create the procedure. You could insert some data, do some stuff like that, and then run your integration test on the procedure, make sure everything's good and it'll shut down the container afterwards. So these test containers are a way to be able to do integration tests when you need infrastructure spawn up just for that specific test. And um, they work pretty well. I, I know there's been a few little hiccups here and there, but for the most part, they're awesome for doing the types of things like what I just mentioned. So that's it. All right. Well, hey, uh, I was uh, doing a little bit of work on a game. And I had to, to read in some data. And uh, I knew that I was able to, uh, you know, serialize Jason with just, you know, the game engine. I had a built-in. But here's the thing, I I didn't want to I didn't want to write Jason. 
I mean, there's no comments, first of all. Second, uh, you know, there's a lot of commas. There's a lot of quotes. That's a lot of brackets. And no comments is just terrible. Well, what I wanted, friends, was I wanted YAML. <laughs> and Said no like one ever. A oh, year or two ago, I was like griping about YAML. And I was like, why don't you just use JSON? <laughs> and I think we even had a survey and I was like, uh, you know, very formerly in the camp of Jason. And, and now it seems so foreign to me because I don't remember what I didn't like about YAML because I'm fully Stockholm on this thing. <laughs> the white space is a little weird, right? Sometimes you can be, it, it can be a little confusing. Uh, but no, it's just nice. And so I went and I found a third party, uh, uh, plugin or not plugin, a package called yaml.net and I imported it and it was great. And I was able to just very easily read it in my yaml and serialize it just like you would Jason, except it's like half the lines and it can have comments and I don't have to have quotes all over the place. And so, yeah, really what I was just saying there is that, uh, yaml is a superior format and I was wrong. <laughs> I, I, if you go to yaml.org though, you almost want to like barf a little bit when you see this website. If you haven't seen it already, you're like, mm, that's, oh, yeah. I mean, mm, but you yeah, know what? There's a reason why jason.org is not, does not look like that because no one, you just can read it. Hey, look, look, the, you know, there's already a problem with yaml when you go to yaml.org. And and Chrome says, "Hey, do you want to install a Google Translate extension?" <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. And yeah, Fancy YAML has like some pretty cool support for like variables and loops and all sorts of weird stuff. It's really powerful. The the Would one you say problem it's fancy? with I wouldn't yep. say it's fancy. Uh, Nothing one, supports it, but you know it's fancy. Look, look. The problem with YAML is the fact that everything that seems to parse it doesn't know how to tell you where the problem is in it, and that is why YAML sucks. Whereas JSON's like, hey, this property right here, I don't know what you want to do with it. It's like, okay, all right, cool. I'll fix that. YAML's like, yeah, the document's bad. Yep. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Now, if you if you miss a space, you're going to get wrecked. God. And true and false is weird too. Like what they allow for Booleans, you know, it's just kind of funky. But uh, I mean, overall, JSON's weird too. I mean, you can't have comments. You've gone to the dark side. Hey, hey the comments is a big one for sure. Uh, one more. Uh, Scott Harden uh, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I said, no, we already did that on the show. We didn't. Uh, have you heard of Power Toys? Is this like Power Tools from back in the day? Uh, pretty much. Uh, so here's a list of Power Toys you can install if you're working on Windows. Uh, this is a Windows thing. It's from Microsoft. They're utilities to customize Windows. Not this Windows is- XP, though, Alan. This would oh, be a dang later it. version. It's, it's dead to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But, you know, I don't see the minimum. So you, you need to have uh, X64 support. So not XP then, I guess. It's not. Uh, you have to have XP64. Uh, but anyway, um, so Always on Top is an app that enables you to pin windows on top of all others with a shortcut. Uh, Power Tools Awake is just a, a simple utility that is designed to keep your uh, computer awake without having to mess with your settings in order to keep it from like, going to sleep if it's like a laptop or whatever. Uh, color pickers, color picker is really nice. Uh, so you can like basically copy stuff to clipboard with just a quick shortcut. Uh, and there's way too many for me to read here, but it's, it's all little stuff like that. Um, mouse utility, um, renaming tool. Wait, wait, um, wait. How are you going to skip fancy zones? That was like the very next one. That's the one that I think everybody would want. Uh, windows manager that makes it easy to complete, 
com- create complex Windows layouts and position. Oh, that's what I should do. Oh, I didn't see that one. Yeah. So that's great for when I'm doing like uh, streaming stuff. Like sometimes I have to like perfectly align my windows. So like here's OBS, here's my uh, Unity, here's my IDE, and I have to line them up perfectly so it looks good on the camera. Yeah, you just push a button. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, image resizer. I mean, there's just a bunch. There's like probably twenty. Is video conference mute a global way to mute between your microphone and camera? That's killer. Yeah. Uh, Windows Shift Q will do it. Boom. Shortcut. So, yeah, uh, we'll have a link to that. Thanks, Scott Harden. Uh, that's an excellent share. What was the mute? Oh, I see it now. Video conference mute. Yeah, and hey, uh, you know, the PM for that was uh, Clint Ruckus. We did an episode a long time back on, uh, on um, was it, uh, I forget what it's called now. It's been a the minute. Templates for. Found you. Uh, no, it was the Visual Studio templating uh, that had like a built-in thing for. Um, it was the file new experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. I, could, I just couldn't remember the name of UWP for those kind of apps. Oh yeah. Wait, where did you see his name on here though? Uh, down at the bottom, uh, Power Toys video walkthrough is a video of. And I recognized it. I was like, "Hey, it's Clint." Um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The PM. Huh. Well, very good. All right, so. Uh, for my tip of the week, um, how, did you know that you can now include diagrams in your markdown? Did well, you can know. with Mermaid, which is a uh, JavaScript package, uh, JavaScript-based diagramming and charting tool that takes the markdown, markdown-inspired definitions and creates diagrams in the browser when you're viewing it. So uh, I'll have a link to this uh, project. It's a uh, GitHub project. Um, but yeah, it's super cool. I think we've talked similar about this, like uh, not this specific one, but there was a, a tool that we had talked about doing diagramming that would be rendered in Visual Studio Code. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. Um, so this, it kind of reminded me of that, the idea of just you know creating your your charts or diagrams or whatever in uh, in code and it being rendered. So yeah, so I'll have a link to that and I'll close you out with this. You ready for a question? Did you hear about the mathematician who is terrified of negative numbers? No, I have not. No, but I get it. You do? <laughs> I, mean, I understand it. I empathize. Well, he would stop at nothing to avoid them. Oh, <laughs> that's good all right well uh that's that's for mike rg who who reminds you to always give 100 percent in everything you do unless you're donating blood (laughs) so with that subscribe to us on itunes spotify stitcher thanks again for that one too mike uh uh, itunes spotify stitcher wherever you like to find your podcast apps uh your podcast rather and uh you know as joe said in his normal joe voice uh, you know, if you haven't left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it if you have, if you would. Uh, so you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and much more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel at codingblocks.net slash Slack. 
I'm Joe Zach, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net. We can find all our social links at the top of the page.